Welcome to Aco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar, recording from my office in Mount Home, Tennessee, at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy, who is the sponsor of uh, this Onco Farm podcast. Uh, today, we're going to do some updates in oncology pharmacy, uh, and we're going to get things started with the approval on August 8th of this year of Megamulizumab. Uh, and in the states, it's megamulizumab kpkc <clears throat> And it's a, it was approved for relapsed refractory mycosis fungoides, or Cesare syndrome, in patients with at least one prior systemic treatment. And mycosis fungoides and Cesare syndrome are cutaneous T-cell lymphomas. So if you think of all of our um, non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, about 85% of them are B-cell malignancies. So that's like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, follicular lymphoma. Uh, this falls into that, that much smaller category, smaller bucket of T-cell lymphomas. Uh, Megamulizumab works by, uh, it's a monoclonal antibody that targets CCR4, which is CC chymokine receptor 4. And if you remember, uh, chemokines um, are involved in the development, uh, homeostasis, and the trafficking of immune cells. So uh, CCR4, again, which is CC chemokine receptor 4, is expressed on um, Tregs, so regulator T cells, which used to be called um, suppressor T cells. Uh, some Th2 or, or helper subset 2 uh, T cells, as well as cutaneous lymphocytes that uh, are positive for an antigen and are skin honing. And that's probably our main target here for treating cutaneous lymphomas are these T cells uh, that are primed to travel to the skin. Uh, and as it so happens, uh, CCR4 is also expressed on a lot of cutaneous T cell lymphomas, as well as adult T cell leukemia lymphoma which was not part of the approval, but is a disease state for which megamulizumab is currently being tested, and you can find some of those uh, early clinical trials on PubMed. Uh, the drug is given uh, IV, one milligram per kilogram, over 60 minutes. Uh, it's given weekly for four doses, so days 1, 8, 15, 22 for the first cycle, and then days 1 and 15 every, 21, every 28 days thereafter. So it's given weekly times four weeks, and then every week thereafter. Uh, it's recommended to give acetaminophen and diphenhydramine with the first dose to prevent infusion reactions and thereafter as they tolerate. Uh, this was approved based on a study of 372 patients randomized one-to-one to, -one to megamulizumab or varinostat, 400 milligrams a day. Now, varinostat is FDA approved as a third-line option for cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. So here we have somewhat of a rarity in today's FDA approvals. We have a drug that is approved based on comparison, not to placebo or not as a single arm study, but to an FDA approved uh, basically next line of therapy, in this case, varinostat. Um, the primary endpoint was progression-free survival. So the median progression-free survival based on investigator endpoint or investigator assessment. So these would be the doctors taking care of the patients in the clinical study. The median progression-free survival was 7.6 months with megamulizumab versus 3.1 months with varinostat, so more than doubling uh, PFS, and that was statistically significant. When the independent assessors, so the central review, the folks who are not involved in the day-to-day -day study, when they looked at uh, progression-free survival events, the median progression-free survival difference shrinks quite a bit. It goes from 6.7 months with megamulizumab to 3.8 months with varinostat, which is no longer a doubling uh, or more than a doubling of median PFS, but that was still statistically significant. Overall response rate was 28% versus 5% favoring megamulizumab. So, so um, 
I would not say a home run, but I would not say a mild. I'd say a moderate efficacy in, in a challenging patient population. So certainly in advance and always good to have a new drug. And of course, you'll, you'll see some cowboys potentially in higher centers where you see T-cell uh, lymphomas uh, trying to use this off-label for some other things. Now, a couple things to think about. Inclusion criteria for this study required patients to have an ANC above 1500 and platelets of 100, fairly standard set points. However, uh, if there was bone marrow involvement of their cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, the ANC had to be at least 1000 and the platelets at least 75. So there was some allowment for patients with bone marrow uh, involvement to still be on the study as long as it was relatively mild bone marrow involvement and they weren't profoundly neutropenic or thrombocytopenic from their disease. Uh, this was a heavily pretreated population, so the median number of prior therapies was three, which makes sense for varinostat to be an appropriate comparator. Uh, no patients in this study had had a prior uh, allogeneic stem cell transplant or an autotransplant within the previous 90 days. So they may have had an autotransplant a year ago, but not 90 days ago. Moving on to the toxicity, uh, dermatologic toxicity was the was one of the, the largest side effects. So 35% of patients had rash of any kind. 24% of all patients had a drug eruption, of which 5% um, of them had a grade 3 or serious uh, drug eruption rash. Um, Steven Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis has been reported in fewer than 1% of patients, so a very serious dermatologic reaction. And if you think about what we're doing um, with regards to uh, you know, likely inhibiting or killing Treg cells and the location of lymphoma, uh, and these uh, T cells that are uh, kind of trafficking towards uh, the skin makes sense that you would see a lot of dermatologic toxicity. The package insert describes that treatment can be topical corticosteroids or holding um, agamulizumab or even discontinuing the drug. Uh, infusion reactions occurred in 35% of patients. Uh, in 8% it was a grade 3 or serious interaction or a serious infusion reaction and this happened usually early on in the first infusion although there were infusion reactions that happened later. Uh, infection was also a common side effect, and remember CCR4 is expressed on uh, T helper cells, and those are obviously involved in mounting immune responses. There were also a fair amount, not a fair amount, but a wide variety of autoimmune complications seen. And I'm just gonna list some of these. So myositis, myocarditis, hepatitis, pneumonitis, Guillain-Barre syndrome, and hypothyroidism which the package insert mentions was managed relatively easily with levothyroxine. So remember, CCR4 is on um, Treg cells, which used to be called suppressor T cells, so those help to dampen the immune response. So it makes sense that if you're, that if, uh, you're getting some, um, it's not off-label or off-target because CCR4 is on the Treg cells. That's not the intended target, though. Um, but if you're going to end up decreasing Treg function, that you would get some autoimmune toxicity, and that makes sense. Uh, when we consider the next warning, which is complications in patients who had an allogeneic stem cell transplant. Now remember, people who got megamulizumab uh, in that trial that got this drug approved did not have, they were excluded if they had a prior allo. But some of these patients, megamulizumab apparently was a, used as a bridge to an allo stem cell transplant. And in those patients who had megamulizumab and went on to have an allo transplant, there appeared to be higher rates of allogeneic stem cell transplant related toxicity in those patients who had megamulizumab, specifically more acute graft versus host disease, more steroid refractory graft versus host disease, and just overall uh, treatment related mortality, uh, it appears. Especially 
if megamulizumab was given within 50 days of the allogeneic stem cell transplant. Again, makes sense that since the drug has, you know, a, almost a three-week, I think 17-day half-life, that some of that activity would still be there within 50 days, um, and that perhaps that a decrease in Treg activity allowed uh, more autoimmune toxicity. So that's megamulizumab. Uh, again, cutaneous T-cell lymphomas are not very common. Uh, so if you're like me and you practice in a community cancer center, not a drug you're probably going to see a whole lot, not a drug that you're going to rush to add to formulary. Um, but if you are, say, a transplant pharmacist, uh, this is a drug you probably should be aware of. Uh, especially with that, the risk of transplant-related complications, and, and I hope that we'll learn more about that in the coming years. And if you are a transplant pharmacist, stay tuned for an update in your neck of the woods later on, probably in about three minutes. So uh, today, August 16th, 2018, linvatinib uh, was approved in the first-line setting for hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, so hepatocellular carcinoma all the patient almost all the patients i've seen are too sick and their livers are too poor to tolerate treatment by the time they get diagnosed at least in our setting um, so i don't know how much impact this is going to have uh, on practice but linvatinib was approved and in the first line setting uh, and it was compared to serafinib which was kind of the old fda standard of care based on the sharp study uh, this was a non-inferiority study for overall survival and lymphatinib didn't demonstrate non-inferiority uh, and there was a progression-free progression survival benefit for lymphatinib and this is uh, the REFLECT study uh, and this was published in Lancet. Um, so not a whole lot I'm going to talk about here. Um, from a toxicity standpoint, again if there's non-inferior overall survival you can debate the, the benefit of a PFS benefit. Um, there was more dermatologic toxicity with serafinib, so more, you know, hand-foot syndrome, uh, more alopecia with serafinib compared to lenvatinib. Uh, there was more hypertension with lenvatinib, which maybe using the toxicity profile would be a way to target who gets lenvatinib and who gets serafinib in those patients who have a liver that can handle a, a TKI. Uh, and then I'll wrap up today with a safety announcement the FDA put out on August 3rd of this month. Um, and when this came across my Twitter, um, by the way, follow me at Twitter, at FarmDeetNip. Follow the podcast at OncoFarmPod. When this came across uh, my Twitter news feed, it said something scary like, FDA warns against azithromycin in cancer, which is a very broad warning because, you know, azithromycin is a commonly used antibiotic, and cancer is a very common disease state in the patients I see in clinic and in practice. But this is related, this directly comes from a clinical trial called Allozithro, which was looking at, as you could guess, the use of azithromycin in allogeneic stem cell transplant patients. And they were looking at using azithromycin to prevent um, bronchial, bronchiolitis obliterans uh, and organizing pneumonia, uh, what they used to call it, or BOOP, uh, which is kind of an inflammation in scar the lungs that is seen in patients after, in some patients after uh, allogeneic stem cell transplants. I remember um, 10 some years ago as a PGY2 resident working heavily in uh, hematologic malignancies, a lot of transplant patients that we would see and use this drug for patients not to prevent bronchiolitis, bronchiolitis obliterans, but those that had it. So this was looking at can we use the drug to prevent this is what it looks like in the study. That was the primary objective anyway. And this was a fringe study and unfortunately they found a higher rate of cancer relapse. Uh, so these were allo stem cell transplants. So these would have been leukemia lymphoma patients and 33 
2.9% of patients had a relapse in the azithromycin group compared to 20.8% with placebo. So um, that's a pretty large difference for a drug that should not be increasing in the risk of relapse. I don't for leukemia or lymphoma. Uh, maybe and hopefully this is just a blip and this is just because um, you know this is a study of fewer than 500 patients. Um, but if this is a real thing, it has a lot of implications. Probably not going to have any implications for like a five-day ZPAC course of azithromycin because these patients would have been taking azithromycin likely continuously. Um, but it maybe will offer some insights into what drives leukemia or lymphoma relapse. So there may be a silver lining yet from this. But for now, um, if you are a transplant uh, pharmacist and you have physicians using uh, azithromycin to try to prevent bronchiolitis obliterans, you should find this uh, FDA warning and uh, discuss it as a team and maybe modify uh, your treatment strategy. Thank you for listening. Uh, please find the podcast uh, on iTunes. Uh, it's also on, in the, the Google Play Store. Uh, rate, review us, give us five stars, tell us what you would like to hear, what you would like to hear more of, and I hope to see you all a little further down the road. Thank you.